0: All right, well, today's message is part three of our Abraham series. Last week, we learned that uh, something may appear good in our eyes, but that doesn't make it good in God's eyes. And God promised Abraham that he would establish a nation through Abraham, but there were obstacles in the way to fulfilling that promise. Uh, At the time, obviously, 75 years of age for a man is not the time to start a family, but it's possible, but it is an obstacle. Sarah, on the other hand, was 65, which is a huge obstacle And then also she's barren. So despite these obstacles, this couple believes God, trusts God, and for 11 years they try to conceive a child, but do so unsuccessfully. And after 11 years of putting their faith in God's ability, and you really got to admire them for that, uh, for 11 years, just month after month, trying to have a child, they come up with an alternative plan, a good idea, but the good idea turns out not to be God's idea. And they decide that they are going to bear a child through Sarah's servant. Now, again, we think of this as something unusual. It wouldn't be something that we—I mean—we don't have servants, and so we definitely don't father children through our servants. You know, if they were our employees, let's say, for lack of a better term. Um, but um, not a good idea. But it was an idea that was something that was acceptable in that culture. It's something that was practiced. It wasn't unusual. Again, a good idea in their eyes, a bad idea in God's eyes. Abraham fathers a child through Sarah's servant, Hagar, and they believe they are honoring God's will and God's plan for their lives. And I mentioned this last week, 13 years go by. 13 years go by and they think they're fulfilling God's plan, everything is good, God is going to establish a kingdom through their son Ishmael, and it comes to find out they were completely wrong. Have you ever had that happen? You thought you've done something good, you've done something right, only later to find that that wasn't the right decision, it wasn't a good decision. And that's what happens to this couple. God shows up and tells them, hey, listen, Sarah will become pregnant, she will give birth to a son, and it's through that son that I will establish my promises, not the son that you have, not through Ishmael. And after Isaac was born, Sarah tells Abraham, listen, uh, you've got to get rid of that woman and her son. And, you know, you could understand Abraham's struggle because, first of all, I'm not blaming this on Sarah. They, they were, he was complicit in all this, but it was her idea. It was her plan. He thought it was good. He went along with it, but he struggles with this idea of, of throwing out his son. But God gives him peace. God speaks to him and says, do what Sarah says. What she's doing is the right thing. So Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away. Ishmael, Later, settles in an area that we, the Bible describes as Shur and Havilah, which is the Arabian Peninsula, and the people who descend from Ishmael are people living in these countries today: Saudi Arabia, uh, United Arab Emirates, uh, Oman, and Yemen. And when Hagar flees from Sarah, the angel of the Lord finds her in the desert and gives her a prophetic word concerning Ishmael. And this is the word, and this is. This is how we understand a good idea uh, isn't always God's idea. And Genesis 16:12, 12, speaking of Ishmael, he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every, man, every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Of course, Ishmael and his descendants have been at odds with Isaac and his descendants for centuries, they are half brothers. They have the same father. Many Bible experts would ref, re, would refer to what takes place in the Middle East between Jews and Arabs as a large family feud, and that's exactly what it is. And really, it stems back to this time. Can you imagine the animosity there is? That here, this, this, this man, Ishmael, is born, and he's given all these promises, but he's sent out and he's sent away, forgotten, kicked to the curb, so to speak, and another son comes along and And God's going to bless them. You can understand the animosity there would be through the years. So when it comes to making a good decision, we want to make sure that it's God's decision. And rather than making a good decision, we want to make a God decision. We want to make sure it's not a good idea from our flesh. We want to make sure it's God's idea. So if we make a fleshly decision, and I'm sure we all have, that can produce an Ishmael. Or it can produce something that we sometimes are just... are looking at it and we're like, I wish I hadn't done that. I made this decision. I thought it was a good decision, but now I'm living with this decision, and it's kind of come to bite me in the backside. Now, when it comes to making a bad decision, God can still use you in spite of bad decisions. I don't want anyone to feel like, well, I make a decision and it has these long-lasting effects, but God can't use me because I made a bad decision. That's not true. God can use you in spite of making bad decisions. But I will say this, if you're going to fulfill God's plan and purpose for your life, it's a whole lot easier to do so without an ishbel on your back. It's a whole lot easier to fulfill God's plan without making a fleshly decision and having the outcome of that decision follow you along all through your life. So unfortunately, uh, we, we have these things that take place, but God can still use them for his glory. That's kind of where we were last week. And just to remind you of this, Romans eleven nine. for the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Just remember that. When you make a bad decision, a stupid decision, it's not a death sentence. It's not the end of God using you. So it might be different, but it's not the end of it. So it's much easier to fulfill God's plan without an Ishmael. So that's where we were last week. And uh, so we're going to go back into the life of Abraham And we have another family member that that plays a large part in Abraham's life. We see Ishmael plays a large part in Abraham's life. Isaac plays a huge part in his life. Now we're going to look at this other person, this other family member that uh, really weighs in and makes a huge impact on Abraham's life. So when God calls Abraham away from his home, he calls him. But we have this this tag-along kid called Lot, and we don't know how old Lot is, Lot's a, a a father. He's, he's a, a mature man. But uh, Lot's father had died in Ur, if you'll remember in Mesopotamia. And Abraham becomes a father figure to his nephew. And God calls Abraham away from his family for a reason. And Lot could get in the way of God fulfilling his plans through Abraham. That doesn't mean that Lot could stop God from fulfilling his plans. It just means that Lot could make it difficult for Abraham to fulfill God's plans. Are you following me? So as a solution, what does God do? God blesses them. Remember, they, they traveled to Canaan, and God blesses them. And their blessing becomes a problem. We're going to read about that in Genesis chapter 13, verse 5. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose among Abram's herders and Lot's. So Abram said to Lot, Let not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived, pay attention to this sentence, Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Near Sodom. So we can see right off from the very beginning that Lot chooses to put himself into close proximity to Sodom, which already had a reputation of being wicked. So we can tell from the beginning, Lot doesn't have the character of his, uh, his uncle Abraham. They're, they're completely different people. And here's what I want you to see about the story of Abraham and Lot. Lot is like that family member you have or that close friend who isn't serving Jesus. And that's what I want you to see in this message today. When you look at Lot, I want you to look at him as a family member, a friend, someone near and dear to your heart who isn't serving Jesus. Now at first, Lot moves as close to Sodom as possible without becoming part of that city. And like Lot, we have family members who choose to put themselves into close proximity of the world. As, as close as possible. And it always puts them in constant spiritual danger. You know folks like this? I mean, that you see them active throughout their life, they do things they get I mean just in as close as the world as they can, and it just constantly keeps them on your heart. you're constantly praying for them. The decision puts them dangerously close to the world and it just keeps you on your knees. Abraham's calling from God is like our calling, our calling from, from our sin and from this world. It reminds me, of 2 Corinthians 16, 17. This is what God says. This is an Old Testament quote that's used in the New Testament. Therefore, God's speaking to us. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. God calls us out from this world. He calls us away from our sin. In a lot of circumstances, he calls us away from those people who we sin with to follow him. God called Abraham away from his family because they served other gods. In order to follow God's plan, God had to move him out of that place to a place where God could establish him and bless him. But Lot decides to tag along, and it makes things difficult. God blesses them in order to separate them, and as a result, Lot chooses to live near Sodom, which again puts him in harm's way. And we see that right off in the beginning in Genesis chapter 4. Lot choosing. Not to live as his uncle Abram, which Abram seems to live out in the desert, away from the towns, kind of isolated. He's in the land. He's prospering. He's not getting too close to the world. But Lot decides to put himself right next to the world. And this is what takes place as a result. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions. Since he was living, look at this now, he's living in Sodom now. He's not just living near Sodom, he's living in Sodom. A man who escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshkel and Anner, all whom were aligned with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out 318 men born in his household and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Abraham is a chieftain, Abraham has his own personal army. And he sends out this army to rescue his family member, Lot. God gave Abraham this victory. They're able to recover um, Lot and all of his family, all their possessions, and all the other people and all their possessions that was carried off by these rival kings who came and invaded Sodom and some other cities in the plain. So we see Abraham has love for his nephew, Lot. I mean, his nephew Lot makes a bad decision. He lives right near Sodom. He moves into Sodom, and it puts him in the the crosshairs of invasions and attacks, and his his nephew is carried off. But, But like anyone, we have family members who make bad decisions. And what do we do? We help them. And you know what? We should help them. We all have family members and friends who get into trouble, and like Abraham, we run to their rescue. Now, we have to be careful that our helping helping doesn't become enabling, and I understand that. But for the most part, we should try to help these people because we love them. Have to be careful that it doesn't become enabling. There's a balance, I get that. But we may not always agree with their decisions, but there's nothing wrong with showing compassion. If we lose our compassion for these people we love, that makes them very vulnerable. Compassion will move you to give more than you should give here's proof. Jesus was moved with compassion, often moved with compassion, after he was tired, after he was worn out, and he would still respond to people. God so loved the world, he was so moved with compassion that he gives his only son as a ransom for our sins. Aren't you grateful that God showed you compassion that you didn't deserve? See, we can look at that and say, that's just simply enabling. Aren't you grateful that God showed you compassion that you didn't deserve, compassion that you couldn't earn. So compassion will move you to give more than you should. That's just, that's just the way it is. Why? Because you love people. That's why. Like Lot, we all have family members and friends that have been taken hostage by this world. They make poor decisions, and it should break our hearts. It should show us to, want us to show compassion for them. It doesn't mean we give them what they want, but we should never deprive them of what they need, and what they need is Jesus and his love. Abraham rescues Lot, but what does Lot do? Lot should really say, you know what, this is not a good idea. Living so close to Sodom is not a good idea. It's a wicked city. It's a perverted city. Um, it's in the crosshairs all the time of, of uh, invasion and rival kings. Maybe I should get the message and do what my, my uncle Abraham does, live out away from the cities." And God will bless me there. But what does he do? He goes right back into the city, right back to where he was from. At first, Lot chooses to live near Sodom. Now he lives in Sodom, and he's, he's taken his, his family inside those city walls, and it's a place full of wickedness. Now, you may have helped someone to escape the world, or maybe you, they made a bad decision. You've helped them out. And what do they do once they get away? They go right back to that bad decision, right back to where they were were stuck in. I'm sure we've all had that take place in our lives. And Lot really should have looked at this opportunity God gave him as a chance to leave Sodom and the wickedness, but instead he returns. And it breaks your heart when people does that. A little more than 10 years takes place. We're going to skip forward. We're going to make a time leap here. So Abraham has recovered his nephew Lot. Uh, 10 years or a little bit more has passed now after Abraham rescues Lot. God appears to Abraham with the two angels and tells Abraham two things. Number one, Sarah is going to give birth to a son. Uh, Ishmael is not your, the son, the rightful son. Sarah will give birth to a son. You shall name him Isaac. The second part of this conversation is what God's going to do uh, to Sodom. And so let's pick this up. Remember, two angels appear with the Lord, and they, they have this meeting with Abraham, and this is Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see, their way, see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely be a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if they have done is, see what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Then the men toward, turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 people in the city? Will you really sweep away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you that you should do a thing such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, "Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now why is Abraham so concerned about the fate of Sodom? He's so concerned because his nephew and his family lives there. And Abraham pleads with the Lord asking him to spare the city. If the angels go to that city, they find 50 righteous people. God, will you spare the city?" Of course God responds, "I'll spare the city for 50 righteous people." Abraham and God both know this. They both know there aren't 50 righteous people in that city. They know there's not 40 righteous people in that city. They know there's not 30 righteous people in the city. They know there's not 20 righteous people in the city. They know there's not 10 righteous people in the city. Speaking of the sin of Sodom, some have tried to say that God judged the city for a number of sin, but they will exclude homosexuality. And for anyone to deny the fact that homosexuality wasn't a part of the moral outcry of Sodom is just completely outrageous. Let me, let me read the story to you. Genesis 19, verse 1. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, "'Here, my lords, please turn into your servant's house.'" and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may arise early and go on your way. And they said, No, we shall spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, "Where are the men whom you who where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may know them carnally." Now I've heard preachers and Christians try to twist this story to something that it isn't, and they will shy away from the events of Sodom. But here are the facts. Two angels who appear in human form go to the city. The men of the city think they're strangers visiting. The men of Sodom go to the home of Lot and demand Lot hand over the men for one purpose, to have sex with them. It's not sex, it's rape, by the way. This is not a mistranslation of Scripture. It's not, the inten- it's not a mistranslation of the men's intention. God doesn't destroy the city because it, it doesn't know how to host them hospitably. That's not the reason why. I've heard that said, these men came to Lot for one reason, to seize those men and to rape them. Now, you can't get past that, and I don't know why we shy away from it. It doesn't mean all rapists are homosexuals, by the way. It doesn't mean that all homosexuals are rapists. I I, I don't know if all the men in Sodom were, were homosexuals, but I can tell you this, that the men who showed up on that door who were wanting to rape those men are rapists. There's nothing to to say about that. There's there's no arguing about it. And as perverse and as uncomfortable as this may seem, church, this is the fact. This is the, the moral decay of the city, that they were going to engage in homosexual gang rape is exactly what it is. Is homosexuality sin? Of course it is. Is committing adultery a sin? Absolutely. Is homosexuality considered an abomination in the eyes of God? Well, what does the Bible say? Leviticus 18:22, you shall not lie with a male as a, with a woman. It is an abomination, period. But just hold on there for a second. An abomination is a degree of sin that God considers disgusting. Now, let's give some context to what an abomination is because is that the only abomination in scripture? No. So before we go casting our stones and and all this at people for for certain sins, let's put it into perspective. Proverbs 16.6, everyone proud in heart is an abomination. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. God looks at pride as an abomination with the same disgust as homosexuality. I know homosexual activity occurs in our community. But I can tell you this, I've seen pride in our church, and it's an abomination. Here's another example, Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who contemns the just, both of them alike are abomination to the Lord. Now, a couple years ago, a man locally was arrested for molesting his daughters. And police find enough evidence to arrest the man and the story makes local news. It's on social media. I remember the story so well. And the man was prosecuted, condemned in the, public, the court of public opinion on Facebook. Weeks later, charges were dropped, and it was learned that the former wife, because they're going through a nasty divorce, coaches her, ch- her daughters to say their father molested them. And everyone comes clean. The father didn't molest them. Now, originally on social media, no one said this, we shouldn't judge this man. Because he is innocent until proven guilty. No one. Not one comment. I even went back to make sure because it's still there. Not one person said this man is innocent until proven guilty. What did everybody do? And it does what most of you do and most of what I would do. We condemn them. Because the police arrest them, so it must be true. But they don't they stand trial yet. And it comes to find out as the police do more investigation that there was just a complete lie. Now, I want you to think about this. What if that's your son? your grandson? What if that's your nephew? What if that's your husband? What if that's your, your grandfather? Falsely accused. I'm just saying this, let the police do their job, let the courts do their job, and we should just keep our mouths shut because it is unjust treatment. It is an abomination to do that. You can't deprive someone of justice. If you want to read about this in the, New Te- or the Old Testament, it is heavy, heavy, heavy throughout the Old Testament, the justice of a person. Not to be treated unjustly. How many of you pass judgment on someone prematurely? It's abomination in the eyes of the Lord, according to Scripture. Proverbs 6, 9, 6 16 and 19. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are abomination to him. A proud look, A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift into running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. You know, I've witnessed the last two, false witness and one who sows discord among the brethren in this church. Hey, it's an abomination, by the way. Just as much as homosexuality is. Sinners are sinners, and they will sin in egregious ways. Some of those sins are an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. Why is it so quiet in here this morning? You know, it reminds us us this, we all need grace. We all need grace. Every one of us. And we all need to turn from our sin, and we all need to draw closer to God. We have family and friends who live in Sodom. And what I mean by Sodom, if you find Sodom throughout Scripture, it's also referred to as a type of the world. We all have relatives and friends who are living inside the walls of sodom and unless they repent unless they turn from that city they will perish in their sins why did god tell abraham what he's going to do in regards to sodom see god wasn't obligated to tell abraham anything god doesn't have to tell abraham what he's going to do he's god it's not like god comes to us and tells us what he's going to do right He's God. He's almighty God. He's sovereign. So why does, Ab- why does God choose to reveal this to Abraham? See, even if God judged the city, poured out his wrath upon the city, and Lot died there, it is not God's fault. It, you can't go and say, God, you should have warned me. should No, they chose to live there. God chose to judge them. So what is God showing us here? God is showing us this. Number one, he is in a covenant relationship with Abraham. He loves Abraham, and he knows this Abraham loves his nephew Lot, and that's why God shows him or tells him what he's about to do. Secondly, God tells Abraham because he wants Abraham to intercede for his family. He wants Abraham to pray for them. He tells Abraham what he's about to do so that Abraham will pray. See, there is power in intercession, when we pray for the salvation of others, calling them out by name, pleading the blood of Jesus, for intervening, literally trying to put yourself in between them and the wrath of God, God honors that. God, in fact, loves that, invites that. You may think, "Well, I let God be God." Listen, church. I'm telling you, God is a grace has more grace than what we think. That's not a license to sin. But he is looking for people who will stand in the gap and pray for sinners. We all have family members and friends living in Sodom, and we better pray for them. We better plead for their souls. If you love these people and feel they are dangerous and close to this world, intercede for them. Pray for them. Listen, I'm not a Bible, ex- Bible prophecy expert by any means, but I do though this. American Christians look at Bible prophecy with a sense of false security. Let me, let me show you what I mean by that. We think that as long as America is safe, the world is safe, and the end hasn't come yet. That's the false sense that Americans have, American Christians. America can fall, collapse, just like Sodom, just like Babylon, and many others, and that doesn't mean the end has come. We think that if this life that we have here stops, well, the end must be coming, but that's not true. The focus is Jerusalem, by the way, not New York, not Chicago not even Holt, in terms of end-time Bible prophecy. And here's what I'm trying to say. America can become no more, and it has nothing to do with the end times. See, we tend to think it's all about us, and that's dangerous. See, we are in dangerous territory, morally and spiritually as a nation. God has given us over to our sins, and we are heading towards judgment. And we can't do what we're doing morally and spiritually and not reap what we've sown, Hosea 7, they have sown to the wind, and they will reap the whirlwind. I'm not a prophet, I'm, but I am comfortable, comfortable with giving a prophetic warning as a watchman. We must repent as a nation, and as a church, we must turn to God. Now, I know that seems like, well, aren't, we're here, we're, no, <laughs> just because we're here in church doesn't mean our hearts are turned towards God. That's called religion, by the way, and religion is comfortable. See, the church is, has access to the mediator, and the mediator is Christ. We don't have a high priest that we have to go through that is a human. We don't have a priesthood. You don't have to go to a priest to pray to God, an intermediary. Our intermediary is Christ himself. His blood gives us access to his throne. There we can come before the throne with boldness and intercede for people. Second Chronicles 7:14, "If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, all of it's about us, by the way, up to this point, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and heal their land. If we want to see God move in our nation, if we really, truly, honestly, listen, instead of complaining about the politics, instead of complaining about Joe Biden, why don't we pray? Why don't we humble ourselves, repent of our own sins, and pray? I'm going to show you why we have to. If we are sickened by the sin we see, stop complaining, repent, and pray. When you want to say something because you see something on Fox News that boils your blood, then just pray. If you don't know how to pray, pray in the Spirit then. If we're troubled by the lack of morality in our nation, and I am with you, I am, we better look in the mirror. Because the Holy Spirit in His church is the restraining power. So this is what happens. Where there is darkness, there is darkness because there is no light to push away the darkness. We're called to be a city on a hill. We're not being a city on a hill with a light that is shining bright that it pushes back the darkness. Remember, the gates of hell shall not prevail. The church isn't where we ought to be spiritually and morally. And explains why our nation is becoming more and more like Sodom. What's the call of God upon our lives? We must humble ourselves, repent, ask God to forgive us our sin. And then we need to pray. We need to repent of our prayerlessness, our lack of devotion. Once we humble ourselves and get ourselves right with God, we can stand in a position of authority like Abraham. And let, let me go back to that uh, lack of devotion. Well, I think we should be in church and you should be in church and you should be in church consistently, you have family vacations. There's nothing wrong with that. Take your vacations, okay? I understand there are things that come up, but you know, just because you feel tired, too bad, just come to church. I'm just saying that. That's, I'm, just, I'm not saying, are you following me? But let's go beyond that. That's not devotion. The devotion I'm talking about is living, Living a godly life, that's devotion. So once we humble ourselves and get in ourselves right with God, we stand in a right position, a right position of authority like Abraham. And then we have the power to intercede for family and friends. Listen, you may not believe this or not, that's okay. But if you're not living right, your prayers go flat. The only prayer God wants to hear from you when you're not living right is, Lord, I repent. Lord, I'm a sinner, please Forgive me. Have mercy on me. And then when we get to that place, he's like, okay, now we can move forward. So often our prayers are hindered because we're not in the right position. We don't have that place of authority like Abraham has a boldness doesn't he He knows there's not 50 righteous people there 40 30 20 10 he knows the only people there and he is it's not that he doesn't care but he's got family there and the boldness that he has now God can say listen Abraham I love you but your nephew put himself in this position he has chose to live in a city that's filled with wickedness we got him out of there once and he runs right back into the city right back into the sin he gets what he gets now that's often the way we would be But God entertains Abraham because he loves Abraham. And Abraham loves God. And Abraham loves his nephew Lot. And therefore that pulls at the heart of God. Abraham is in that right position, that place of authority. I believe we can be in a place relationally with God like Abraham. And please hear me for just a second. Don't block me out when I say this that we can pray our families out of Sodom. I understand we have a free will. I believe, you know, we can't make anyone get saved. I understand that. And that's not what I'm saying. But I also believe in the sovereign power of God, uh, the Holy Spirit. God calls people to repentance. I'll give you an example, and you all should have the same example. At some point in your lives, you got saved. Now, the day before, what was different? What was different the day before, the month before, the week before, the year before, the years before you got saved? Well, someone was praying for you, I guarantee you. Or some prayers had finally come to fruition with God's will and his timing. Someone was praying for you, I guarantee you. You aren't here by accident. You didn't find Jesus, he found you. Look at this, Psalms 34, 17. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The key is the righteous being in right relationship with God. Is God hearing you when you pray? Is he delivering you when you pray? Is God delivering others when you pray? If not, then let's do this. Humble ourselves, repent, and get ourselves in the right position with God, and then pray. James 5, 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. The earth produced its fruit. Elijah has a prayer life that is effective. Why does Elijah have a prayer life that is effective? Because his position with God is righteous. He stood in a place of righteousness with the Lord. He prays for the the Lord to not let it rain on the land for three years and six, I like how specific it is too, three years and six months, and it doesn't rain until he goes back and says, Lord, let it rain. Now, he doesn't have the power to do that. He's just simply, God has given him the right, the authority to come into his presence and pray with that boldness. He's not arrogant. He's not coming in with pride. He's coming in with the right relationship with God. When we pray, we should pray and want our prayer to be as effective as Elijah or Abraham. Abraham prayed in intercession for his family, and God rescued them from the judgment he poured out on Sodom. Now, we know that Lot's wife didn't make it so well, but let's just face it, she didn't want to leave. And that's why she became a pillar of salt. So I get that. There are people living dangerously close to this world, in judgment, in church, we have to pray. But it starts with us getting ourselves in the right position with God. It's time for us to pray for our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, our spouses, our best friends, our coworkers. I mean, there are people we love that mean a whole lot to us. And they are playing around in Sodom. But that's what sin does. Sin does this. It entertains, entertains you, it draws you in, it makes you feel like, this is what it's about, and it leaves you hungry for more. It never satisfies. It's blinding. It's intoxicating. And we, we stand back and we say, how can they do that? How, how can they lower themselves to do these things? How, how can they continue to, to devolve, so to speak? Because they're not born again, and they need Jesus, and that's why. So if God has given you that vision, that clarity, to see that this person I love is just... And, and just engage it in sin and, and, and abominations and pray for them. And if you pray for them and you don't see anything happening, then examine your own heart. Am I in right relationship with God? But when we stand and pray in the gap, stand in the gap for me, pray, pray a prayer of intercession, pray for if people say, pray for their deliverance, God loves that type of prayer. He wants to pull people out of this world. But his church is called to pray.